The Old Testament reading for today is Genesis 3, verses 1 through 20. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 20. The New Testament reading is Luke 1, 26 through 38, and that will be the sermon text for today. Genesis 3, 1 through 20. Luke 1, 26 through 38. The title of the sermon for today is, He Will Be Called Holy, the Son of God. Let's go now to Genesis 3 and read verses 1 through 20. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Let us go now to Luke chapter 1. And consider verses 26 through 38. Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord, will, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born 
will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. It is interesting that when the first promise concerning the coming Redeemer was made by God in the curse that was pronounced upon the serpent in the presence of Adam and Eve shortly after their fall into sin, it was specifically said that the Savior, that is to say the one who would crush the serpent's head, would be brought into the world not by the man's seed but through the woman. Isn't that interesting? The Savior, the Redeemer, would be brought into the world not by the man but through the woman. That is what is specifically said in this first promise of the gospel. And also notice the name that was given to this woman, Eve. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, Genesis 3.20 says. And the Hebrew Eve sounds like the words meaning life giver and living. Notice that she is given this name after she was deceived by the serpent, after she was used to bring temptation to Adam, and after Adam's fall into sin, which brought humanity into a state of sin and death. The name Eve almost sounds inappropriate, given the way she was used by the evil one to bring sin and death into the world. But in fact, the name is fitting for two reasons. One, By God's grace, life would go on on planet Earth. The human race would descend from Eve. In this physical sense, she is the mother of all living. Two, by God's grace, she is the mother of all who are given spiritual and eternal life through faith in the promised Redeemer or Messiah, who would in the fullness of time be brought into the world through her. The name of Eve is fitting, therefore, but note this, it could only be given to her because of the grace of God and because of the promise of the Redeemer that was delivered by God and the curse pronounced upon the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, the Lord said to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." Now it is true, as I've just said, that many descended from Eve. Indeed, all of humanity descended from her. But the scriptures are clear that some were of her seed, spiritually speaking, because they shared her faith and they served her God. Many of her physical descendants, on the other hand, were of the evil one. They did not believe the promise concerning the Redeemer. They did not serve God. Instead, they served Satan. These are the seed of the serpent, spiritually speaking. So then, two spiritual lines descend from Eve, and the hostility that existed between these two lines is evident in the Genesis story. There is a sense, therefore, in which the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are to be understood as a collective seed. Eve was the mother of all living, that is to say, of all humanity collectively. And Eve was the mother of all who belong to God in the world through faith in the promised Redeemer, Collectively, all others belong to the deceiver, that is to say, to Satan, the serpent. Collectively, for they have lined themselves with him in the heart. But notice that the seed of the woman is also singular in Genesis 3.15. I want you to listen again to the first promise of the gospel. The Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, collective, and her offspring, collective, He, singular, shall bruise your head, and you, singular, shall bruise his heel. The point is this, through Eve, though Eve would have many descendants, only one of them, a male son, would be the promised Redeemer who would crush the serpent's head. There would be many who descended from Eve physically, all of humanity. There would be many who descended from her spiritually. Those are those who have faith in the promised Messiah. But in the fullness of time, There would be one son, a singular son, the he of Genesis 3.15, who would be born into the world in order to crush or bruise the serpent's head. 
And this does also mean that though many women would deceive from Eve in human history, only one would have the great privilege of giving birth to this promised Redeemer. So there is a collective sense in which many will descend from Eve physically and spiritually. There is a collective sense in which many women would deceive from Eve and would therefore carry along this righteous line. But things become very focused in Genesis 3.15. In the fullness of time, one male son would descend from Eve who would crush the serpent's head. And as I have just said, this also means that in the fullness of time, there would be one woman, one particular woman who would be blessed of the Lord to bring this male son, the Messiah, the Redeemer, into the world. When, how, and by whom would this Redeemer be brought into the world? These things were not clearly revealed at first, but they would grow in clarity with the passing of time and with further revelation. I ask you, is it possible that Eve thought she had given birth to the promised Redeemer when she gave birth to her first son, Cain? I think it is possible. I think it is possible that Eve, after giving birth to Cain, by the way, what, a, what an event that must have been. You know, childbirth is always quite an ordeal. But imagine being the first one to give birth to a child. It must have been quite an ordeal. And I think when she gave birth to Cain, she thought that this would be the head-crushing uh, son of the woman that was promised to her and that curse that was delivered to the serpent. But those hopes were dashed when Cain proved himself to be an evil man, that is to say, of the seed of the serpent. Being driven by envy, he killed his righteous brother Abel. And so the Lord replaced Abel with righteous Seth. From Seth, the righteous line was continued in the world. And in the process of time, it was clarified by way of covenant promises that the Messiah, this promised one, would descend from Abraham. And after that, it was clarified further by way of more covenant promises that the Messiah would descend from King David. All along the way, there are hints that the birth of the Messiah would be miraculous. As I've said, the first promise of the gospel revealed that the Redeemer would come from the woman, but the man's involvement was not mentioned. Perhaps this was a hint at the virgin birth. And in the era of the patriarchs, the line of Abraham was threatened by old age and barrenness, but God miraculously preserved the line by bringing life out of death. These were not virgin births, mind you, but they were miraculous births, and I think they are to be regarded as a foreshadowing of the virgin birth itself. And when we come to that famous prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, uh, we see it clearly stated that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign, says the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Even with this very brief and selective sampling of Scripture references from the Old Testament, I hope you can see how things grew more clear with the passing of time concerning the birth of the promised Messiah. Over time it became clear that the promised Messiah would be brought into the world through a woman, a daughter of Abraham, a daughter of David, a virgin. The Messiah would be truly human therefore, but His birth would be miraculous. Indeed, He would not only be the son of King David, He would also be David's Lord, we learn from the Psalms. He would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. He would be the eternal Son of God incarnate. These truths were revealed dimly and in a mysterious way in Old Testament times. But these truths became very clear when the Messiah was finally born into the world in fulfillment of these promises and prophecies previously made. Brothers and sisters, all of that Old Testament history, which I have just very quickly overviewed with you, must be in our minds as we consider this story concerning the announcement that was made to the Virgin Mary by the angel Gabriel. When this angel appeared to this young woman, the words that he spoke to her made it very clear that she would be the one singular daughter of Eve who would be blessed to bring the one singular son of Adam and son of God into the world to defeat Satan, to overthrow his kingdom, and redeem God's people from bondage to Satan's sin and death, that is to say, to reconcile them to the Father. And so let us now go to our passage for today and to consider it in detail. With all of these things in our mind, let us now go 
to Luke 1, 26. Verses 26 and 27 set the stage for what follows in uh, this passage. The phrase, in the sixth month, has reference to the announcement that came to Zechariah, the priest from the angel Gabriel, concerning the miraculous birth of his son, John, who would prepare the way for the Messiah. So, six months after that announcement, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. The angel Gabriel was busy in those days, wasn't he? He had lots of messages to deliver. He had delivered messages to the prophet Daniel hundreds of years earlier, which revealed the timing of the arrival of the Messiah. And now that the time had fully come, he, Gabriel, is the one who is sent to deliver the news, first to Zechariah and now to Mary. The text says that he was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth was a very small, poor, and insignificant village located about 66 miles to the north of Jerusalem. This was the hometown of Joseph and Mary. And although Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, Nazareth is where he would be raised. Nazareth was his hometown. I want you to notice that two locations are mentioned in Luke 1, Luke chapter 1. First, the holy place of the temple in Jerusalem was mentioned. That is where Zechariah received the announcement from the angel Gabriel. And second, the humble, off-the-beaten-path town of Nazareth. The two locations could not be more different. The one was considered by the people to be the most holy and most glorious place. The other was lowly, disregarded, even despised. In fact, there was a saying in Jesus' day that went something like this, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That is John 1.46. And yet this would be the town in which Jesus the Messiah would be raised. This, by God's decree and providence, would be the town uh, that Jesus would be raised in. Not only was Jesus raised in a humble and lowly place, He would also be raised by humble and lowly parents. I want you to notice that this announcement came to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, a carpenter. Given the town in which they lived, their age and Joseph's profession, it is reasonable to assume that they were poor. So I want you to notice this theme Because it will reoccur in Luke's Gospel. When the eternal Son of God assumed a human nature to be the Messiah for us, He came in a humble and lowly form. He came in a humble and lowly form to redeem those of a humble and lowly estate in order to lift them to glory. This theme is here introduced to us in Luke's Gospel from the very beginning. And it is going to reoccur time and time again later in Luke Chapter 1, we will encounter the song that Mary sang in response to all of this heavenly news. Listen for this theme as I read Mary's song. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. We will come to consider that song of Mary in detail in in, uh, the future. But I want you to see that this theme is very much present in Luke's gospel from the beginning. Luke presents Jesus the Messiah, Messiah to us as a humble and lowly Savior. He was not born and raised in centers of power and prestige, maybe Rome or Jerusalem. And neither was he born to parents of wealth and renown. Instead, he came into this world in a humble estate. He was humble and lowly. And if we are to have Him as our Lord and Savior, then we must identify with Him in His lowliness and in His humility. For through Him, God has, again I quote Mary, scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things 
and the rich He has sent away empty. So let us note this theme, and let us be sure that we take it to heart, that we would be humble and lowly before the Lord, and that we would have faith in this humble and lowly Messiah. Though it is true that Jesus would be raised in a humble town by humble parents, His parents did have the proper genealogy to give birth to and raise the Messiah, for they were of the house of David, the text says. The Old Testament scriptures make it clear that the Messiah would descend from King David. And the New Testament scriptures are clear that Jesus of Nazareth did, in fact, descend from David, with Mary as his birth mother and Joseph as his legal and earthly father. And so who was this young virgin who was betrothed, we might say engaged, although betrothal was more legally binding than engagement, to Joseph. Verse 27 tells us the virgin's name was Mary. And I think it is right for us to try to imagine what it must have been like to be Mary. Although I think it is right for us to imagine, and also, excuse me, also I think it is right for us to imagine what it would have been like to be Joseph. Both were probably young. Mary was likely younger, perhaps as young as 14 or 15 years old. People married at a younger age back in those days. And all of this news would have been very shocking to her and to them. But notice that they demonstrate great faith. They demonstrate great faith. Now that the stage has been set, I want to consider the announcement of the angel Gabriel. Beginning in verse 28, we read, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. What a marvelous greeting this is. To be favored by the Lord is to have the Lord's grace and kindness set upon you. Though I do not doubt that Mary was a devout faithful and righteous young woman, relatively speaking, as it, as it pertains to her covenant faithfulness. It is a mistake to assume that she merited or earned the favor of the Lord by her righteousness. This idea would contradict the very clear teaching of Scripture, which, which says that none is righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. Mary was favored by the Lord, and this was because the Lord, by His grace, had determined to set His favor upon her. And the greatest of all blessings was this, the Lord was with her. This was true in a spiritual sense at the time when Gabriel uttered these words to her, and it would be true even in a physical sense, not many days after this, for the Lord Himself would be in her and with her as the eternal Son of God incarnate. The Lord is with you, O highly favored one. In verse 29 we read, But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The Greek word translated as greatly troubled is very strong. It means to be disturbed or distressed mentally and emotionally. The young virgin was shaken by this encounter and this greeting. And who can blame her? She was troubled at this saying. Verse 30 and the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. To find favor with God is to have God's grace bestowed upon you. And note this, Mary is not the giver of grace, but the recipient of God's grace. As blessed as she was, she is not to be prayed to or venerated as if she is something more than a common woman. Mary was a young woman in need of God's grace. Yes, she is to be regarded as blessed, for she was chosen to serve as the very mother of God. But this was by God's grace alone, for she had found favor or grace with God. After this greeting, Gabriel continues with his announcement in verse 31. And behold, he says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. What I want you to see this morning, brothers and sisters, is that this announcement that came from the angel Gabriel to Mary is jam-packed with meaning. Each and every phrase was intended to, to remind Mary, and now us, 
of the Old Testament Scriptures that revealed the coming Messiah. Let us go through every one of these phrases now, one by one. The phrase, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, was to remind Mary of the, prom- the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, which has already been read this morning. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. When the angel said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb, he meant this, You, Mary, are the virgin of Isaiah 7.14. The time has come, and you are the one to bring the one into the world who will redeem sinners. The phrase, And you shall call his name Jesus, is also filled with meaning. The meaning becomes clear when we recognize that the name Jesus is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua. Jesus is Joshua or Yeshua. The name Joshua means the Lord delivers or the Lord saves. Isn't this a fitting name for the Messiah? He is Joshua the Christ. He is the Lord delivers or the Lord saves. He is the anointed one of God. And the name Joshua ought to remind us of two Joshuas from the Old Testament. One, we must remember Joshua, the assistant of, to Moses, who would lead the people of Israel into the promised land. Just think of the story, and I pray that you're able to make the connections. Joshua led Israel into the promised land of Canaan. Jesus the Messiah came to redeem His people, not from Egypt, as Moses did, but from bondage to Satan, sin, and death, and to lead them not into Canaan, but into the eternal land of promise, the new heavens and new earth. Jesus is Joshua, only greater. The second Joshua, we should remember, served as high priest over Judah in the days of Zechariah, after the Babylonian captivity, and during the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. This story is less familiar to us, I think, but it also should be remembered. There is the Joshua who led Israel into Canaan, but there is also this Joshua, the high priest, who served Israel in these days after being returned from Babylonian captivity, who was involved in the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. You may read about this Joshua, the high priest, in Zechariah chapter 3 and 6. The words... Spoken over Joshua the high priest are found in Zechariah 6, and they are especially interesting, I think, for in that text, Zechariah does something strange. He places a crown on the head of this priest. The crown of a king is placed on the head of this priest. And Zechariah says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch... For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the counsel of his peace shall be between them both. That is Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. I hope you can see that the name Joshua carries a lot of theological baggage. It means the Lord delivers or saves. It reminds us of Joshua, the successor to Moses, who conquered Israel's enemies and led the people safely into the promised land. And it reminds us also of the Joshua of Zechariah 3 and 6, the high priest who is called the branch. He is the rebuilder of God's temple. He is the priest king who extends the temple and expands the temple of the Lord and even involves foreigners, Gentiles, in this work. If we read that text carefully, I'm moving quickly through this particular portion of the sermon and this reference to Zechariah 3 and 6, but I hope that you're able to make the connections in your mind. Here there was a prophecy concerning a coming Joshua, the branch, who would build God's temple, who would expand it to the ends of the earth, who would involve Gentiles. Who is this Joshua? It was not only the high priest who ministered in those days. It is a, it is a prefiguring of the Christ to come. Jesus Christ is Joshua. He is the Savior. He is the Conqueror. He is the priest king who is building God's temple even now and will bring it to a consummation 
at the end of time. Consider now the phrase, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. We should remember that Gabriel told Zechariah that his son John would be great. He would be great before the Lord, he said. In fact, he is to be regarded, that is to say John, as the greatest of the Old Covenant prophets, for he was the last and he was the one who was blessed to prepare the way for the arrival of the promised Messiah. But Jesus' greatness is on another level, for he is the Son of the Most High. That is to say, He is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune God, come in the flesh. And so this explains what is meant by the prophecy of Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This Son, born to the virgin, is the Son of God Most High. He is the eternally begotten Son of the Father who took to Himself a true human nature, body and soul. The phrase, And the Lord will give to Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of His kingdom there will be no end, is to remind us of the promises that God made to King David when He entered into a covenant with him as recorded in 2 Samuel 7. The Lord promised to give David a son who would build God's temple and whose throne and kingdom would last forever and ever. As great as David was, he died and was buried. And he did not continue to reign forever and ever, but God promised to give David a son and his throne and kingdom would last forever. These promises, as recorded in 2 Samuel 7, were fulfilled in part by Solomon and the kings of Israel who descended from him. But these promises are fulfilled in full in Jesus Christ. He sits on the throne of his father David. He reigns over the house of Jacob, over Israel, the true Israel of God. He reigns and his kingdom will never come to an end. All of these kings that descended from David by way of ordinary generation... They lived for a time, they reigned for a time, and they died and were buried. But this son of David, Jesus the Christ, will reign forever and ever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. Let us now consider Mary's question and the answer provided by Gabriel in verses 34 through 37. First, Mary's question. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Now some have wondered why Zechariah was rebuked by the angel and struck with muteness when he asked the question, How shall I know this, for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years? That is Luke 1.18. In response to the announcement that was made to him, he asked this question and he was rebuked and he was even punished with muteness for a time. Why is Mary not rebuked? Why was no punishment delivered to Mary when she also asked a question of the angel? What was the difference between their questions? First, notice that the questions differed in substance. Zechariah asked, How shall I know this? In other words, I do not know this or believe this. How will you convince me? How shall I know this? But Mary's question was different. She asked, How will this be? Since I am a virgin, she was not asking for proof that it would be, but was perplexed concerning how it would be, and she was requesting clarification. Two, it should be clear that there was a difference in the heart of Zechariah and Mary when they asked these questions. Zechariah clearly disbelieved the word of the angel and asked for evidence or proof, and he was struck with muteness both as a punishment and as a sign that the word of the angel was true. Do you want proof, Zechariah? Well, here it is. You will be unable to speak until the child is born. And this will be a sign to you. I think that is the meaning. This will be a sign to you, both a punishment and a sign that the word is true. But Mary did not doubt. She wondered. Mary did not doubt. She wondered. And there is a great difference between doubting the clearly revealed word of the Lord and wondering about things that are mysterious. Brothers and sisters... We must be careful 
to not transgress this boundary. The Lord has spoken. He has revealed Himself to us and His will for us in Christ and in the Scriptures. We must never question or doubt the word of the Lord. But there are things that are mysterious to us. We may bring those questions to the Lord in prayer. But when we do, we are to come with the humble and faithful disposition of Mary. Her question was not one of disbelief. It was an honest, humble, and faithful inquiry. And so the angel did not rebuke her, but answered her so as to further strengthen the precious faith that she had in her heart. Look at verse 35. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So here what we have is an answer to the question, how? How will this be? Mary asked. How did the eternal Son of God become incarnate? Uh, This was the question, and the angel provided an answer. There is still much that is mysterious, of course. Uh, But he provided an answer. Yes, she was a virgin, and she would remain a virgin up until the birth of the Messiah. The child would be conceived not in an ordinary way, not of Adam's or Joseph's physical seed, but of the woman's seed only, and by the power of God Almighty. Christ is fully human, therefore, He obtained His true human nature, a true body and reasonable soul, through Mary. And Christ is fully God. Christ has God alone as Father. How many fathers does Jesus have? Answer, only one. He has God alone as Father. He is the eternally begotten Son of God, the second person of the triune God, come in the flesh. Joseph was Jesus' father, but only in an earthly sense. He raised the boy, yes, up until a certain point. We don't hear of him after these these situations in Jesus' rather early life. Uh, We hear of him later in Jesus' perhaps teenage years, but after that no more. But Jesus had one father truly, and that is the Father in heaven. Notice that Gabriel explains the result of this miraculous virgin birth. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Therefore, because of this, the child will be called Holy, the Son of God. You and I were born into this world in sin. We had not sinned personally when we were born, when we were conceived. But we were born in sin... And with a corrupted nature, because we were born in Adam as our federal head and representative, he, Adam, broke the covenant of works that was made with him in the garden. And we must know that he did this not on his own, but on behalf of all of humanity. Adam was the federal head or representative of all humanity. And so he broke that covenant of works, not just for himself, but for all who descended from him through the process of ordinary generation. To be born in Adam through the process of ordinary generation is to be born in sin. That is to say, we are born with a fallen and corrupted nature. We're born in a fallen and corrupted state. Through the miraculous virgin birth of Christ, that chain was broken. Jesus Christ was truly human, given His birth to Mary. Through her, He was the true son of David, Abraham, and Adam. But He was shielded from the transmission of original sin through the miraculous virgin conception by the power of the Most High God. Jesus Christ is human as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 For He is the person of the eternal Son of God come in the flesh, miraculously conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He is the Holy Son of God. In verses 36 and 37, the angel adds, And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. This announcement must have brought great comfort to the young woman Mary, for it revealed that she was not alone. God was with her, and He was working in and through others too, 
In fact, in the very next passage of Luke's Gospel, we will find Mary visiting her, her relative Elizabeth to be comforted and encouraged by her and to rejoice with her concerning the marvelous things that God was doing through them. Through Elizabeth, John the Baptist would come. Through Mary, Jesus the Messiah would come. The last thing that we need to consider is Mary's humble and submissive response to these things. Her response is found in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me, or let it be to me, rather, according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I have three very brief observations to make concerning Mary's response. One, we should not overlook the dramatic impact that these things would have on this young girl's life. This miraculous conception would impact her relationship with Joseph, the man to whom she was betrothed. People in her community would question her integrity. Her whole life would be wrapped up in this drama. This would be a great joy to her, of course, but there would also be great sorrow, too. In fact, later in Luke, we will encounter the words of a man named Simeon who spoke to Mary. Among other things, he said, And a sword will pierce through your own soul. That is Luke 2.35, referring to the sorrow that Mary would experience as the mother of Jesus, our crucified and risen Lord. My point is this, though Mary was greatly blessed to be the mother of the Messiah, there is a sense in which it cost her her life. It cost her her very life. Her whole life would be devoted to this thing here. Two, Mary's response is an example to all of us. Being called by God to undergo these wonderful but very difficult things, she humbly submitted herself to the will of God. Here again her words, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Sometimes the Lord calls His people to endure great difficulty. And we ought to submit ourselves to His will for us. Indeed, the Christian life begins with submission, doesn't it? We confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead. And the Christian life is marked by submission to Christ as Lord to the very end, it may be that the Lord calls us in His secret will to endure difficulty. And I am saying that the young virgin Mary is an example to all of us. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Three, Mary's faithful submission to the Lord must be contrasted with the rebellion of Eve. Mary's Faithful submission to the Lord must be contrasted with the rebellion of Eve. Think of it. If we consider the whole story of the Bible, through the rebellion of the woman Eve, temptation and sin entered the world. How did it come into the world? Except through her. The serpent tempted her. She listened to his voice. She took and ate of the fruit, and then she gave the fruit to her husband, and he ate. Adam was the federal head, yes, and in Adam we all sin, it is true. But Eve was the conduit. Through Eve, temptation and sin came into the world. But notice this, through the faithful submission of the woman Mary, the Redeemer was brought into the world, and He would overcome Satan's sin and death for all of those given to Him by the Father in eternity. And so again, it would be Jesus Christ, who is the federal head of all of His people. He is the head and mediator of the covenant of grace. He is our Redeemer. Mary is not, in any sense, our Redeemer. Christ alone is. But through her faithful and humble submission to the will of the Father. In contrast to Eve, this, this Messiah was brought into this world, this Savior, this Redeemer, and He came to undo all of the damage that was done through Eve and Adam's rebellion. Let us now conclude with a few brief contemplations. One, I think it is important that we not lose sight of Luke's stated purpose for writing. He wrote to Theophilus and to us 
so that we might have certainty about the things we have been told concerning Jesus. You can see that Luke, like an attorney standing before a judge and jury, is beginning to present us with witnesses and evidence so as to convince us that Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth is the promised Messiah. The witnesses are people, Zechariah and Mary. But notice the way in which Luke also sets the Old Testament scriptures before us to function as witnesses. Jesus the Christ was born into this world in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. He was born right on time in fulfillment of the prophecies of Daniel. Gabriel revealed that to Daniel, remember? He was born in the line of David. He was born to a virgin. His name was Jesus or Joshua. So then, people are held forth as witnesses. Hear the testimony of Zechariah. Hear the testimony of Mary, the mother of Jesus. But these testimonies are presented to us in such a way so as to hold forth the Old Testament scriptures as well. These things were foretold. These things were fulfilled. Two, as we consider this narrative, we should feel motivated, I think, to grow in our familiarity with the scriptures, both the New Testament and the Old. We should feel motivated to grow in our familiarity with the scriptures, both the New Testament and the Old. Notice that Gabriel and Luke did not feel the need to make these references to the Old Testament explicit. It was assumed that this young girl Mary was so familiar with the Old Testament scriptures that she would make the connections quickly in her mind as these words and phrases drawn from the Old Testament were used by the angel Gabriel. Do you notice it? He he did not say, remember Mary... In the prophet Isaiah, in the seventh chapter, in verse, they didn't have chapters and verses back then, anyways, he did not explicitly make these references for her. He simply used little phrases that would indeed remind someone who had the Word of God in their mind and heart of these passages of Scripture. So familiar was she with the Old Testament Scriptures that she made the connections herself almost immediately. And Luke doesn't even make the connections explicit as he reports all of this to us. He simply puts these phrases before us. He speaks of the line of David. He uses the language of conception, doesn't he? He introduces the Messiah to us as Jesus or Joshua. And he assumes that we will be able to make the connections ourselves. But we must be familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures if we are to do it. So are we so familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures that the true meaning and significance of Gabriel's announcement would be clear to us? Or would his announcement go over our heads? If we were Mary, you see, would his announcement just go over our heads? Yes, Mary was perplexed concerning how she would conceive and bear a son as a virgin. But she was not perplexed about the meaning and significance of the announcement of the angel. She understood his message. She understood that she would be the virgin of whom Isaiah spoke. She understood that she would be the mother of the promised Messiah. Mary knew the scriptures well, and so should we, brothers and sisters. We must read the scriptures. We must listen to them read and preached attentively. Our faith will be strengthened. As we grow in our understanding of the Scriptures, you you do understand that this is going to have an impact upon your soul. If you are easily shaken, if you are easily discouraged and overwhelmed and perplexed by the things of this life, one of the things you need to do is read the Bible more. Grow more familiar with it. Grow more convinced that indeed Jesus is the Messiah and in Him we have the hope of life everlasting. You see, we must study the Scriptures faithfully. Three, I urge you to contemplate further this theme that is already beginning to emerge in Luke's Gospel. And that is the way in which God works through the humble and lowly of this world to confound the wise and the proud. Jesus was born to poor and humble parents, living in a poor and humble town. They were nobodies, according to the wisdom of this world. But God determined to work in and through them. Christ Himself lived a humble and lowly life. Indeed, His followers are called to imitate Him in this. And yet... Are we not constantly tempted to think as the world thinks, to value worldly power, wealth, and fame? I think this might be an especially pronounced temptation for our young people, to think as the world thinks, to to value worldly power, wealth, and fame. If you, brothers and sisters of all ages, I suppose are obsessed with the things of this world, if you look at them and, 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 
and if you see them to be of supreme worth, you must turn from this. We must remember, uh, brothers and sisters, that the wisdom of God turns all of that on its head. So let me ask you, Christian, are you enamored with the things of this world? Do worldly power, wealth, and fame impress you and tempt you? I exhort you to put off worldly mindedness. And have the mind of Christ instead, for He was humble and lowly. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of a humble estate. Let us be sure to have humble hearts like that of our Savior. Four, and finally, let us marvel more and more over the wisdom of God and the accomplishment of our salvation through Jesus Christ. God's plan of salvation is truly marvelous to consider. To think that He would redeem us from bondage to Satan's sin and death by sending the eternal Son to assume a human nature through the virgin birth, to live, suffer, die, descend, and ascend to glory for us, is truly incredible. As we consider the salvation that God has worked for us through Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke, we ought to be moved to praise This is what it should produce within us as we consider the great mystery and marvelousness of this redemption that has been earned for us. We ought to be moved to praise. We should agree with Paul, who after contemplating these things said, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Great God in heaven, again, as has already been prayed this morning, I pray that You would help us to comprehend more and more how marvelous Your mercy and grace is, as shown to us in Christ Jesus. More and more may we marvel over your mercy and grace. More and more may we be enamored by your love. More and more may we cling to Jesus, Joshua, the Messiah. May we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And through him may we come to you to give you the glory, O God, that you so deserve. I pray that you would bless our study in the Gospel of Luke, that we would come to grasp more and more the depth of your wisdom and the marvel of this redemption that you have accomplished for us. Help us, we pray in Christ's name, and produce within us more and more faithfulness to you. Amen.